0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: From our friends Bruce Wilkinson and Ken Boa in their great little book, Talk Through the Bible, uh, somewhat edited. 2 Timothy writing from a Roman prison. Paul imparts his final words his last will and testament to his spiritual son, Timothy, who is ministering in the midst of opposition and hardship in Ephesus. Paul stresses the importance of godly living, preaching the word, both in and out of season, and preparing for the coming apostasy within, note that word, within the church. Underlying all that Paul writes is the importance of God's word, the only foundation strong enough to withstand persecution from without and problems from within. It is accurate to call this his last will and testament. Whether we know for sure Paul knew that or not, we don't know. If I was to guess, I would say he did. And we'll piece that together with a couple of observations. Now, you know when you hear the term um, tradition holds, tradition holds to something? Loosely that means a lot of people that wrote around that time agreed on something. There's no fact when we say tradition holds to something, so keep that in mind about what I'm going to tell you. Tradition holds as late as the fifth century that there was a prison called the Mamertine Prison, and this is a picture uh, in Rome. It's right outside the Colosseum, and it's there today. Uh, the excavation is largely unmolested, so if you go, this is what you'll see. And for those of you who've been to um, Israel or Greek and Turkey and the journeys of Paul and so forth. If you go to Rome, the antiquity around this is, it looks legitimate. Again, we don't know for sure, but it is likely this is where he and Peter were held before their execution. It's very small. The interesting thing about it to me is the hole for access is in the ceiling And so the prisoners were lowered down by ropes or something. There was no way out. It was cold, it was dark, it was damp. And of course, the Catholics being what they are, they built a large building around it and it's a tourist site you can go see. Um, But I show it to you to put a picture in your mind. He's writing this in some type of captivity to Timothy and he's older. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what that may mean. again this is from uh, to the churches in Ephesus. Timothy had remained there and uh, we talk about the pastorals. Why? Because they're written to individuals. We mentioned this last time. First and second Timothy and Titus particularly. Sometimes other letters are also called pastorals but in this case we're talking about letters written to a name, not the church in Ephesus, not the Colossians, not the Galatians. And so there's there's a leaning in personal feel to this one and second Timothy is in many respects the most intimate letter that Paul wrote. Again, I remind you, he's the elder statesman apostle. He's the last apostle chosen, and he will write much of our New Testament, second only to uh, Luke. Uh, Rome had been burned in 64 AD July by Nero, So we always talk about context. What's the context of the letter and how do we apply it in our context? So this is written, sixty. this time frame, uh, Rome is burned, and Nero is a great politician. He blames it on the Christians. He actually did it, but let's scapegoat the Christians. So this idea of blaming Christians for something they did not do is nothing new. It's pragmatic. It is very dangerous for Christians, however. Paul is a very renowned spokesman for the gospel of Christ in Rome. He wasn't sort of this crazy preacher, he was a loud voice in Rome. It was an irritation to Nero, so the idea to blame him and put him in prison solved some of his political problems, so it seemed. Um, Keep in mind, we we can't always connect all the dots, but Paul's message to Timothy in essence in this letter is preach the word. Teach the scripture. We would say study the Bible, read the Bible. And when we read 2 Timothy and we piece together a timeline, which I don't typically talk about these books, but this one is interesting because uh, Nero is going to kill himself in AD 68. So we only have about a year where Paul has written this and sent it to Timothy. So that's why I I lean to think he probably knew his days were numbered and uh, that he may well die in that prison cell, although he was executed, it seems, legend has it, by Nero. 2 Timothy is unlike 1 Timothy or Titus because of the intense personal nature. It's a very intimate letter. It is a father like love for this son. Uh, he knows his family background. He mentions his mother and grandmother in the, in the opening uh, verses. And it's also a uh, warning you're going to face real danger, not metaphorical danger, not social media danger. You're going to face life and death danger. And that is the sort of the foundation of this passage. Um, If you're inclined, there's a a author named Walter Locke and he did a very interesting uh, comparison. And he looked at final addresses from several other uh, key figures in scripture. You know, we talk about last will and testament and how I even thought about opening up with a bunch of quotes from people after that, you know, near their death, but I thought, no, let's don't waste time there. But this is interesting because when you look at Acts 20 with Paul's last words, Moses in Deuteronomy 31, Joshua in Joshua 23, David in 1 Kings uh, chapter 2, the Lord Jesus in the upper room discourse in the Gospel of John, and Peter, you've got these six farewells. And for those of you who will admit that you're getting older, will admit that your time might be short, this will be a great devotion for you to do for the next few months. Look at each of those passages in some detail. What are they saying as they know their time on earth is short? And that would be a marvelous—I got into a bit of a rabbit hole this, this week, which is why I'm talking about it, um, but I'll leave it there and we'll continue. As with art or authors, we pay more attention when they're dead. Your paintings are worth nothing while you're living, but when you're dead, they're worth millions of dollars, and the same is true with authors. Some of us can remember when Francis Schaeffer died. If you grew up in that time period, Francis Schaeffer was a renowned theologian and had these things called the Brie around the world, and if Francis Schaeffer spoke, everybody listened. There was a time when C.S. Lewis was that way. They became so much more popular after they died, and someone else got the royalties from what they wrote. That's the way life works. I think about Paul, and again, this is somewhat subjective, it's somewhat speculative. He's old, he's traveled in some of those arduous ways of traveling. Uh, it took months to get to some of these places. He, he winters in Malta, he's snake bit, he's beaten, he's in and out of prison, he's persecuted, he's chased around. There's no you know, TSA line would be a joy compared to what he did. This man suffered incredibly just in the physical traveling and we also had these little snippets of where his eyesight may have been an issue. Maybe he had cataracts. Maybe he had glaucoma. Uh, we don't know. But he's in a prison cell. If it's in, if it's in the one we looked at in Rome, uh, it's not comfortable. It's not like Holiday Inn. This isn't a fun place to be. And he's cold. He's going to ask for a blanket. So get in your head a picture of an old guy. Maybe he's got arthritis. Maybe he's losing his vision. Luke, his physician friend, is with him, which there's probably more going on there than we understand. the doctor helping his friend and brother in Christ. But when, when I read through these letters that Paul wrote again and again and again, uh, I, th- I conclude this. He's, he's ex- exhorting Timothy as a last will and testament. He's giving him a theological inheritance and a priceless estate. I'm leaving you the two most important things I can leave you. A theological inheritance and an eternal, an eternal estate. And I want you to use them for good. When uh, we get older and you go through financial planning, uh, there's good things to do with your will. Maybe you have college funds for your grandchildren, if you're thinking that way. Um... I'm going to give you a theological inheritance and a priceless estate for you to handle Timothy. So get this elder statesman apostle chosen by Jesus Christ, saw Jesus in an unusual way, performed some of the works of Jesus, was given a message to take the gospel to the Gentiles, way more difficult than the other apostles as far as we know. And now as he's fading from this life to eternal life, his biggest concern is, Here's a theological inheritance I want you to understand. It's a priceless estate, and I'm handing it to you to handle. It's a clear, it's a candid letter, but it's also a difficult letter. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience. Just stop for a second there. Can any of us say I do what I do with a clear conscience? Oh my word! And you're, many of you are in the medical profession, many of you financial, many of you are in in the world of music and art. Um, that's another good lesson/slash prayer this week. Give me a clear conscience in what I'm doing. I serve God with a clear conscience. And the way my forefathers did is I constantly remind, remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. The, the, the endearing, he doesn't write this way. He, think of Romans and the theological diatribes and the interlocutor in First Corinthians, the corrective nature. Yes, he's loving in this, he can be nourishing and encouraging, but this is pretty intimate. Verse 5, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, I love this, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it is in you as well. Uh, Grandparents, never underestimate the power of your faith and prayer for your grandchildren. One of the mysteries of this life, um, you know, growing up, you have a love-hate with your parents. Maybe in the end you love them a lot, but that grandparent-grandchild thing is just a unique relationship. And don't underestimate, grandma, grandpa, your prayers for your grandchildren, yet unborn. And Paul acknowledges, your grandmother and your mother got it. And you were reared with it, Timothy. So this intimacy comes through. But it's a real and present danger. Verse 8 of chapter 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Can I say here another cheery Paul the Apostle message? Join me in suffering. Consider your calling. Consider your heritage. Consider the family you were raised. Consider what you were taught by your mother and grandmother. Consider what they believed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, Timothy. And join me in suffering. This is not an invitation most want. How often have I referred to Paul's uh, Ananias' comment where Jesus is telling him to go to him and help him? He's blind. And hey, have you heard about this guy? I love the interaction. Do you know what he's done? And finally, he says, Go, for I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. Oh, that's a real cheery message. Your life's going to be difficult and stink and hardship and You're going to be snake bit. You're going to be beaten in and out of jail most of your ministry years. Um, And now he's telling the younger Timothy, there's a theological inheritance and an eternal uh, estate I'm giving you. And it can be hard. It can be hard. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil don't like what you and I are sharing. Uh, This isn't merely a buckle up and bow up and muscle in and be more disciplined as a Christian. Some of us are wired that way and it's easy. Let's set a goal. Let's do some things. And those are important. But this is reliance upon the gospel and upon God's spirit to move in people's life when it's dangerous, when it's difficult. And it's unusual. Whenever I read about being ashamed of the gospel, uh, a number of people pop into my mind. One of them is Bill Howard. Some of you all know Bill Howard here in Middle Tennessee. Bill Howard uh, probably has shared Christ more effectively with more men and women than anyone I know in Middle Tennessee. Uh, Many people have come to Christ in Tennessee in the past 20 years or so. Bill Howard was somewhere in there telling them about the Lord. Uh, Jim Traficant is a friend in Northern Virginia. I listen to Jim on the phone, and I go, "I wish I could be more like him. I wish I shared the gospel as fluidly as he does." And he gets on, to him, "Michael, Michael, I had lunch with this three-star general. He's so close to the kingdom, man. He's going to come to the kingdom. I know he is." And I'm like, ah. "And then Spencer and Barbara Brand." Psh. Had a major catastrophe in their home years ago. They were cutting a tree down in the tree service. The tree pushed the home and almost killed one of their children. The home had to be completely rebuilt, bro- broke gas lines and power lines. It was a massive, massive issue. And the poor guy, that it, it was his fault, is on the curb crying like a schoolboy. And Barbara shares Christ with him. No, I get mad. I'm going to sue him, you know. I'm going I'm to take you to court. I'm going to get a brand new house out of it. That's all, my flesh reacting. This person needs the Lord. What will it take for you and me to not be ashamed of the gospel? I had a friend this week send me a beautiful note. Essentially she said, I took the courage and I shared the gospel with one of my kids, one of my adult kids. Bully for her. We have an eternal estate a theological inheritance. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. We're fighting about all the wrong fights. And Paul's words to Timothy are just as important then as they are today. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. He says it in many of his letters. But now on the edge of his life and death he's saying join me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You don't do it in your flesh. You lean on the power of God. Again, this is not a transactional conversation. This isn't persuading people to believe. It's explaining it clearly that he lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead. He paid for your sin and mine in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. And any who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are given the assurance of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and begin a new life with him. The transactional decision is left with the individual, not, not, You as a salesperson. It's the strangest transaction on the planet. And there's no downside to anybody. There's no net loss. Except I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. I don't know how. I don't know all the answers, Michael. I don't know how to talk about the Bible like you do. Good. You're better off. Just clearly explain the story. When I read these passages, my mind goes to all the people that God puts in my path. And they're all, you know the illustration of low-hanging fruit, right? This was a person that was ready for the gospel. And I always tease the Lord. I'm convinced God has a sense of humor. Because I get these rock-hard pieces of fruit at the top of the tree that have been there for four seasons. And these are the people that I get in my life. And and they, I mean, they're smart and they know everything. And I'm like, Yeah, let's... Talk about this. My friend who died just a few weeks ago, um, retired physician, we had become close friends, and we would spar about theology. He didn't believe in miracles. He didn't believe in the Bible without error. He had some crazy views, but he loved talking to me. And we spent a Thursday together. Uh, talking about miracles and I use all the best apologetics I know how to use about well do you believe in any miracle did did Jesus turn water to wine did he heal a blind man's eyes did he make uh, John 9 a set of new eyes did he cure his uh, Peter's mother-in-law any of those miracles can you explain them away yeah you can explain them all away medically I said okay what about Jesus being raised from the dead well there you got me all right, let's start there then. That's a good place to start. I like that. You, you, that's a possible miracle. He wasn't just in a coma for a while or something. Yeah, That was Thursday. He died Sunday night. I'm oh, ashamed. I'm heartbroken. I don't know where he is. I don't know where he is. If you can not for somebody who's lost, I'm concerned about your heart. We are such an I, me, my culture. It's all about me. No, it's about the people that you know that don't know the Savior. And the old man Paul, is in a prison cell, hoping its hope as younger Timothy gets it. Here's a theological inheritance. Here's an eternal estate. It's called the gospel, and I'm giving it to you. and we're going to see in a moment the passage, I'm going to hand it to you. What will you do with it? Yeah, you might suffer. I think, you know, I analyze my own life. You have to analyze yours. What am I ashamed of? What am I afraid of? Am I afraid of, you know, somebody getting mad at me? Big deal. That happens all the time. I'm not timid, but it's that complication of turning that relationship to spiritual things. You know, a real easy way to do it is, you know, we've been friends for a while. We've been hanging out for a while. I really enjoy this guy in particular. I love hanging out with you. But I want to talk to you about something really, really important to me. In fact, it's the most important thing to me. And I wouldn't be a very good friend if I didn't talk to you about the thing that's most important to me. And I would just love to get your opinion. It's that easy. It's that easy. And you got to be careful at work, you got to be careful where, when, and why, all that stuff. Get over it. Don't do it out of the flesh, don't do it out of mustering up your self discipline. It's the power of God. You're leaning on him to throw the three-point. You don't have to do that every time. He can do it. You and I are just the delivery service. Verse 11, chapter 1, "...for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day." the prior verse. He was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And again, this was a rabbit hole for me this week. Think about the differentiation of those terms. He could have just said he was an apostle. I'm a preacher, I'm an apostle, I'm a teacher. Because each one has a different emphasis at a different time. There are times he speaks as an apostolic authority. There are times he's preaching, he's exhorting, he's calling someone out, we might say. And there's a time he's teaching. You know, if you're a parent, there's a time you're an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher. There's a time you're the authority over them. There's a time you're exhorting them. Get your homework done. Obey your mother. What father in this room hasn't sat in your comfortable chair at home and said things like I have? Are you arguing with your mother? (laughs) When you argue with your mother, you're arguing with me too. Do you really want to argue with me? What do you need to say to your mother? I, this is the greatest parenting technique, and you don't have to even get out of your chair. <laughs> it's a wonderful, lazy man's parenting technique. Are you arguing with your mother? Your mother and I are one. That's exhortation, right? That's preaching. And there's time we're teaching. Let me show you something. Whether it's homework, or how to apply for a job, or what you're looking for in a husband or a wife... I don't want to overstate this, but I think it's fascinating. He says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. There were different times I used those roles for the kingdom of God. For this reason, I suffer these things. I'm not ashamed. Wouldn't that be a great prayer for you to pray? I won't be ashamed anymore. I won't be ashamed anymore. I won't worry about the what if. Why? Because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Some of us are old enough in this room to remember there's a hymn by that name. I know whom I have believed. 1883, written by a man named Daniel Webster Whittle. Um, The first two verses. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthily Christ in love redeem me for his own. Let's go back for that just a second, please. The election, predestination, chosen theology in those four little lines is amazing. I know whom I believed in. To me, he hath made known. Why unworthy, Christ in love redeem me for His own. The refrain most may know. But I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. And if we had time, we'd go through the whole hymn verse by verse and exposit it, because He talks about salvation, He talks about the Holy Spirit's work, He talks about the difficulties of life, and the last refrain, the last verses about eschatology. Hymn writers of a different time. We might know the hymn, but you probably don't know the man. He joined the war, the Civil War in uh, 1861. He married his wife the night before he left for war. He goes off to war, loses an arm, becomes a prisoner of war, was promoted to the level of major. While a prisoner of war, he uh, had an interesting experience. His words... My dear mother was a devout Christian and parted from me with many a tear when he's going off to war. She followed me with many a prayer. She placed the New Testament in the pocket of the haversack that she'd arranged for me. While he was a prisoner of war, a male nurse came to him and asked him if he would pray for a dying boy, as he called it, another young man who was dying in the war, and um, he didn't want to do it. The male nurse persisted that he would pray for the boy. He'd seen Whittle read his Bible. He was a rare man in this ward. Whittle argued back and forth with him. The nurse said, I'm a wicked man, and I could not pray with him. Whittle said, I too am a wicked man with many sins in my own life, and I cannot pray with him either. The nurse persisted, and Whittle finally agrees. Whittle wrote again, I dropped to my knees and held the boy's hand in mine. In a few broken words I confessed my sins and asked Christ to forgive me. I believe right there, He did forgive me. Then I prayed earnestly for the boy. He became quiet. He pressed his hand in mine as I prayed and pleaded God's promises. When I rose from my knees, he was dead. But a look of peace had come over his troubled face. I cannot but believe that God used him to bring me to the Savior. I hope to meet him in heaven. Ten years later, D.L. Moody meets him and tells him he should be an evangelist. He decided to write hymns, 200 of them. Note the verbs in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Be strong, entrust, suffer hardships. Hardly the prosperity gospel. Hardly if then, promises. Be strong in trust and suffer. Again, this isn't mustering up. It's the grace that is in Christ Jesus, he says. I've said it many, many times. I'll repeat it many, many more. You cannot make your flesh better. You cannot make your flesh better. I can't be a better Christian by doing and not doing. I can grow, hopefully, as a disciple. I can grow as a maturing Christian with God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. It's that simple. Verse 2 is another frequently appealed to verse. If you know any of the navigators or discipleship groups, they often use 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. You'll see teachers 2.2.2 2, um, because it's a great verse to say, entrust these to other people who will be able to teach others also. And it's a banking term, not to overstate the word too much, but in antiquity it meant the same thing it means today. You invest your money with a person you trust, and trust this to faithful people. Give this to men and women who will teach others also. It's a theological inheritance. It's an eternal estate, and I'm giving it to you so you'll give it to other people. It's not for you to keep. It's not for you to hoard. It's not for you to use simply on yourself. It's for you to share with others. Suffer hardship with me. And then he uses the illustration of a good soldier, which he does on more than one occasion. When Cindy and I lived in D.C., we had a large military uh, community up there. Loved them like crazy. Uh, Christian men and women in uniform are some of the finest Christians on the planet. And uh, it struck me, though, on occasion, when a husband or a wife was going to be deployed, that there would be this angst among the family and praying that maybe they wouldn't have to go. Now, I'm just a preacher, but I'm going, wait a minute, if you signed up for the Army, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, Navy, aren't you supposed to go when they tell you to go? Well, isn't that sort of the, I mean, if you're a police officer and they say, put on a bulletproof vest and take a pistol and go in the neighborhood, you know, I don't want to do that. That's dangerous. Well, that's what you signed up to do. So if you're going to be deployed, that would be a good thing, it seems to me. I don't know much, but that seems like why you got in the military. And you know there were some men and women that got in the military because they thought about a GI bill, they thought about benefits, they thought about getting an education at the government's expense, but they forgot, wait, the first and foremost reason I got in here was to defend the country and the Constitution. That's what I agreed to do. I don't mean to step on anybody's toes, but... I scratch my head when people worry about, I don't want to be deployed. Well, then get out. The theological parallels are even more important. Suffer hardship with me like a good soldier. If God gave you a commission to do something, Timothy, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also, that's what I want you to do. Verse 15, another very familiar verse. If you grew up around Awana, be diligent to present yourself a workman approved uh, excuse me be diligent to present yourself to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth and it was J Dwight Pentecost who helped in the founding of that organization and came up with the acrostic A-W-A-N-A. approved workers are not ashamed approved workmen are not ashamed you know you will never waste time in this book Never. Never. How tempting is it to get up in the morning and pull out this thing or your tablet or your computer and jump on and check whatever you check. If I touch social media in the morning, I'm toast. I'm toast. I never get to hear. Which is one reason I don't I separate my technology Bible software from my devotional. Because if I turn on the computer, even though I'm using Logos and all my devotional tools, I'll see something on my email and I'm gone. You might have the same struggle. That's why I tell you, get a real Bible and a real thing called a pen and learn to color in your Bible and take notes and read a little every day. Approved workmen. Let me paraphrase it. Approved workmen are never ashamed. As you and I are in the word, we're not on our heels. It's, it's the old story about when you ask someone, what's God teaching you right now? And if they can't say something, I, you know, this week I've been reading, Wayne and I were talking the other day, we were up here setting the room back up after they used it, and I said, you know, Wayne, the two things that God has just been beat me over the head about the last few weeks are don't grow weary in doing good and fighting the good fight. I hate both those phrases. <laughs> oh, gosh. I got to keep doing this, Lord. Yeah, you got to keep doing it. Don't go weary. weary in, how many of you grow weary in doing good? How many of you feel like you're pearls before swine? How many of you feel like nobody respects me anymore? I mean, just go down the list. Don't grow weary in doing good. That's the admonition. And fight the good fight. We talked about this last Sunday. Fight the good fight, not the wrong fight, not your fight. Fight the good fight. It'll, Always be a fight. Again, when Moses told Joshua, and later God tells Joshua, be strong and take courage, you don't tell someone who is fearful and weak. You don't tell someone who's strong and courageous to be strong and courageous. You tell someone who's fearful and weak, be strong and have good courage, right? Because if I'm already strong and courageous, you don't have to remind me to be strong and courageous. So when the Bible says things like, don't be ashamed, well, then I'm ashamed. Let's acknowledge it. And I need just like you do. Accurately handling the word of truth is an interesting phrase. It's only found here in the Bible. Orthotomeo. Ortho, you all know orthodontics, orthopedics. You're straightening something out. Uh, But the word really has the same similarities as as the Proverbs, making the path straight. If any of you have been on a missions trip uh, to a jungle area, and um, a village area that doesn't have paved roads yet, or may never will, Um, somebody at some point took a machete and cut their way through some area, and that footpath became trafficked with animals and bicycles and maybe later carts. And they didn't pick the most arduous route. They picked a straight, easy path. And that's what the word means, that you're accurately handling You're cutting it Straight. A lot in that verse. Be diligent to present yourself approved by God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Cut it straight. Handle accurately the word of truth. Teach it correctly. Verse 16, but avoid worldly ch- and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. I think of people that teach garbage and I don't want to be mad. I don't want to be on my high horse. I don't want to get up here and talk about all the ills and pulpits. You know, There's value in a little bit of knowledge, but that's not our emphasis. But when I read James 3, verse 1, it frightens me. Not many of you become teachers, brethren, lest you will incur a stricter judgment. When I was a young preacher, that verse made me sweat, literally. If you listen to me carefully, I use the word a lot the older I get, seems. This seems to me. Now I can be bulldogmatic and I can be dogmatic on certain things, but if I'm giving you an opinion as I did talking about Paul and maybe his age in the beginning of this message, I I can't be for sure. This is what legend says, but it's interesting color. It's just background. It's an illustration. It's not the same as the text. A friend of mine... um, Dave Gibson. Some of the folks here know Dave from our Dallas Seminary days. He's a missionary, a pastor, East West, great guy. And he had on the header of his sermon notes uh, from, from John um twelve, twenty-one, Sir, we would see Jesus. When the Greeks came, Sir, we would see Jesus. And true story on the top of my header for many years is what are you trying to do to these poor people? It's, it's almost cliche. Worldly, empty chatter, which will lead to further ungodliness. And it can be like gangrene. The word in gang, for gangrene in Greek is essentially gangrene. It's a loan word we take from the Greek language, gangrenat, and bring it into English and slur it gangrene. It also meant cancer in antiquity. Their talk will spread like cancer. What a vivid picture. Next time you're in a small group, And uh, I hope this doesn't happen. But next time someone reads a verse and they say, What does this mean to you? Just go like this and say, I really don't care. I want to know what it means. Now we can talk about how we apply it and how we understand it. I really don't care what you think it means to you. The scripture is a baseline. It is the foundation. This is what Paul's talking about. It's an eternal inheritance. It's a theological inheritance. It's God's word. He spoke and he did not stutter, as my professor often told us. And so our goal is to study, to be approved by God, a workman, and I think we can say workwoman, a workperson, not ashamed. Because you're rooted and grounded on the text. Well, another cheery Pauline sermon coming. Verse 1 of chapter 3. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. I love it. Again, I don't know how prosperity gospel people get away with what they say. And I'm more heartbroken of the hundreds of thousands of people who drink the Kool-Aid. Paul says, it's going to get hard, Timothy. For men and women will be, look at this list, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, Revilers, disobedient to parents. Don't you don't you often stop and say, wait a minute, how can all these other terrible sins somehow be like disobedient to parents? Doesn't that never catch you, it always catches me. I mean, I disobeyed mom and dad, and that's like being you know, an adulterer or rapist? <coughs> yeah. Because there's a God ordained authority, and the way we obey authority is illustrative of the way we obey the authority. ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, verse 4, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What an epitaph. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they had denied its power, Avoid such men as these. This is, could be written for today, couldn't it? Does that sound like our current contextual life in these two verses? This is what we're living in. Form of godliness is the one that grabs me. Um, we, we have identified God in our own image. Some of you have listened to the podcast, and Christopher Yuan's a dear friend we've had on a couple of times on In Context, and um, Christopher and I had this ongoing text thing all the time about where sexuality and LGBTQAI plus is going, and he's trying to kindly and truthfully defend the Scriptures against the lies that are being fed within Christians who are moving into these areas and saying it's all okay, and. You know, you don't want to be angry about it and scream and yell. You don't want to hate people that struggle with sin. That, that doesn't accomplish anything, make, make you feel better, but doesn't do anything for the good of the gospel. Um, but this phrase, lovers of self, rather than lovers of God, gives me a differentiation to think about. Do you love yourself more than you love God? You know, I have to say a lot of times, yes, I do. I like my full belly. I like my chair. I like my comfort. I like my house. My, do you have a cup of co- do you have a cup that you use in the morning for coffee? Confession time. Do you have a cup that you use that you like for some silly reason? Now, when you travel and you go to a hotel and they have a styrofoam cup, isn't that like the most disgusting thing in the world? <laughs> a styrofoam cup? I want my cup at my house. And you know what happened to my cup not long ago? You know exactly what happened. It broke. And I was, yeah, exactly. It's like trauma. I need to talk about shrink. I broke my coffee cup. You know how many I've been through trying to find a coffee cup? My wife got one of those Bluetooth ones. I don't want to plug something else in. Jiminy, I want my coffee cup. It's silly, but it's true. I love myself. My bed, my pillow, my coffee cup. My, 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 my. And I know we have liberty. I'm not trying to be stupid here. Well, maybe I am. Um, but I want to ask you the question, whether it's your sexual identity or your, the thing you love the most, do you love that more than God? And when you and I create God in our image, we're in dangerous territory. We're in heretical territory. We're in egregious ter- territory. We submit to the word of God and to what Christ is about himself, not how I feel about my Christianity. A friend of mine had one of his children, adult children, move in with um, their friend. And he's a very good man, very good husband, good father. And he met with this adult child and said, you know, look, you know what the word says. You know what mom and I think. You know this is wrong. We didn't raise you this way, all the things we would say. And this adult child said, well, I've talked to Jesus and we have an agreement about this. That's raised in a good Christian, I mean a solid Christian home, a guy that knows the word. You see, we're making God in man's image rather than understanding God made us in his image to worship him, the form of godliness. Simple way to look at this list is to flip it over. Not a lover of self, not a lover of money, not boastful or arrogant, obedient, grateful, holy, and a lover of God. That's the man and woman you and I want to be. You know, when we we raise children, we often ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? I remember my parents asking me that when I was very young. What do you want to be when you grow up? And it's a good question to get a child thinking forward. We have four children, four adult children, and all through life, you're trying to help them find what, <laughs> what they like and, you know, fan the flame and give them opportunities. Is it sports? Is it music? Is it science? Is it academics? Is it, you know, how do we help you dial in to something that you love and find passion? I'm trying to, as a mom and dad, help them find their way and then, you know, so forth. Um, I learned too late in parenting. Don't ask your child what he or she wants to be when they grow up. Ask them this question. What do you think God wants you to be when you grow up? That's a very different question, and it's fascinating. Children know the difference. What do you think God wants you to be when you grow up? Those of you young parents, start seasoning that into the conversation. What do you think God wants you to be? You've got gifts, skills, talents, interests, passion. Maybe you're good in, academics, maybe you struggle, maybe you're great in art, maybe you're good with your hands, maybe you're a, a helpful person, you know, maybe take initiative. What do you think God wants you to do with that? It's his life he gave you. Chapter three, verse seven, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. This week I thought about that a long time. I thought, yeah, that's our culture. And I went, no, they stopped learning a long time ago. They're not always learning anymore. They've concluded what they want is based on their emotions. Well, so much for a short letter and I'm out of time. Lastly, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. Actually, two more verses. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is one of the important verses when it comes to the inspiration of Scripture. We talk about big A, little A, the big A author God, the little A author Paul. And so when we read this all Scripture, that includes Old and New Testament, that includes what Paul's writing now, is inspired, Theophanustus, a unique word. Theo, God, theos, phanustus, God breathed. Some, some will argue it's God's spirit breathing, either way is fine but the scripture is by God's communication to man, but there's a purpose, the t- teaching, training, reproof, correction, but why? So that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. You can't be more grounded in the scripture. It's impossible to be overgrounded. Medical school is the best illustration on the planet because if you go to your four years of college, probably gonna major in sciences, more than likely, and you're gonna take a little test, so you get into med school, then you're going to get into med school. And you know, for the first two years, it's just an academic discipline. It's crazy maker. You, you have no life. By your third year, you start to dip your toe in doing things. Third and fourth year, most medical students are like, okay, I really want to do this. But then you got another three, four, five, seven years of stuff to, to learn what you're going to do. And should that medical student, when he or she graduates from, you know, med school, do the spinal surgeries I've had. No, 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 no. I'm a spine surgeon that's been doing it for years and teaches other people how to do it so that when they cut on me, they know what they're doing. I, I've never done a knee replacement, but I read a book on it. I've never taken a tumor out of your head, but I think I, can, I think I can try. Med school understands when you're dealing with life and death, you want to train people to do it well. This is a great illustration of that. You need to know the word. Why, why I'm so bent on seminaries, even though seminaries have their own challenges these days. You need some time and a text to be able to stand up and teach it, for goodness sakes. Yes, there's natural gifting, but it's here for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness so we be adequate. Okay, land the plane. Chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and that by His appearing and His kingdom preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Again, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you... Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The time has come. It comes and goes seasonally. I'm not an end times guy that thinks it's going to happen tomorrow. It may, but I don't worry about that. I don't focus on that. I know some of you do. God bless you. I'd rather focus on the here and now and how to make disciples and how to grow as a Christian and how to help others in the same way. The body's big and wide, but a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine is here. And Western Christianity is a very different animal than it was even one, two, three decades ago, which is why it's so important that you get in the Word. It's why you begin your day in the Word. It's why you get in a group that's a discipleship group or a Bible study group and you study a book of the Bible. Sure, you can read books about the Bible. I'm all for that. But the diet ought to be nourish faith and sound doctrine. This is the last thing Paul wrote. What are you going to take away from it?
0: Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.